1: It's mosquito season and we talk to the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station as they begin their annual mosquito monitoring program. And choking our rivers and waterways, filmmaker Emily DeLuca talks about her new documentary about the invasion of Hydrilla. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott Smith. It's that time of year when mosquitoes and other bugs are out in full force as the weather warms up and we decide to get out and about more. But mosquitoes can have a serious effect on our health due to diseases they might be carrying, which is why the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station has been carrying out monitoring and testing of mosquitoes and other pests for a number of years to understand the changing mosquito landscape in the state and to help us avoid becoming ill. Here's my interview with Philip Armstrong, a virologist, and medical entomologist from The Experiment Station. Philip, thanks for joining us.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: It's that time of year again. Mosquitoes are back out. So, of course, the testing and the monitoring program is active. Tell us a little bit about it.
0: Yeah, so this is our annual trapping and testing program. It's, we're monitoring mosquito populations and testing them for viruses that can cause human disease in the state of Connecticut. So there are really two viruses of concern, West Nile virus and Eastern equine encephalitis virus or triple E virus that are primary causes of concern. And so we have a network of 108 locations throughout the state where we set mosquito traps on a weekly rotation. All the mosquitoes are identified and tested for for virus infection.
1: Tell us a little bit about the COVID year 2020. What were you finding then?
0: So 2020, we did detect a lot of uh, West Nile virus activity in mosquitoes, and we had a number of human cases too in primarily in densely populated parts of the state in Fairfield, New Haven, and Hartford counties. So all our human cases also came out of those areas as well. The other virus, Triple E virus, we did detect Triple E virus in mosquitoes in a couple locations, but the overall risk was low last year. And fortunately, we did not have any human cases or horse cases.
1: You mentioned that you detected quite a lot in, like, Fairfield, Hartford, New Haven counties. Uh, You used the words, like, densely populated. Is is that the only reason why you, like, find it there, or are there other factors as to why there seems to be more mosquito and disease mosquito activity in sort of the western part of the state?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Those are all historical hotspots for triple E virus, and so... What we saw last year is consistent with previous years as well. The reason being, it's the mosquito that transmits West Nile virus lives and primarily is found in densely populated areas. It's larvae develop in water that accumulates in the storm drains that you see on the side of the road. And so if the water is allowed to stagnate in those storm drains, those are big production sites for the mosquito that transmits West Nile virus, as well as any sort of water that is found in sort of rain gutters or in artificial containers. Those are areas where you find this mosquito. So it tends to be more concentrated in disturbed areas in human um, built environments.
1: The other thing I want to ask you as well as we're seeing, and I know that the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station is very much part of this as well, is like tracking ticks because that's a big issue here. And we're seeing it's like different uh, varieties of ticks arrive actually in the state. Are we seeing it's like an increase in mosquitoes at all? Is it becoming more of a problem?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So we've got a long term data. So we've been doing this for more than 25 years. Some of our trap sites go back to 1997 when we first established the program. And we've been monitoring the mosquito populations for a long time and the viruses that they carry. What I can say is that there are a couple trends that are are worrying. We are collecting, If we look at our overall numbers of mosquitoes in our long-term trapping sites. We're seeing that the numbers are increasing somewhat over time. And we're also seeing new species being introduced into our area. So one of the species, there's been two new species: the uh, Asian tiger mosquito that has come into our our state, and there's another species called um, the Aedes japonicus, which is a new species. So we're seeing we're we're seeing new species come into our area, and we are seeing greater numbers in our trap collections over time. So fortunately, yeah, I don't have a lot of good news on that front. When we look at the viruses that they carry, West Nile virus and Triple E virus, West Nile virus fluctuates a lot from year to year as does Triple E virus. But what I can say is the long-term trend, at least for Triple E virus, is we're seeing greater levels of virus activity in more recent years. We had the largest outbreak of Triple E virus in the country in 50 years in 2019. that also affected residents here in Connecticut. We had three fatalities that year and a um, um, number of human cases. So unfortunately, not a lot of good news on the mosquito
1: front either. Getting back to those two new sort of like varieties of, of mosquito that uh, you've detected here in Connecticut, do they bring any different concerns by way of diseases at all?
0: Yeah. So. The two species I mentioned are originally from East Asia and they are expanding into our area. So far, they don't seem to be very important vectors of disease. They're not important transmitters of West Nile virus or E virus. The Asian tiger mosquito is an important vector of viruses like dengue, chikungunya virus, Zika virus in certain parts of the world, primarily in the tropical and subtropical parts of the world. Fortunately we don't have those viruses here but you know that is a concern that they could uh, be vectors of, of those viruses that were to be introduced here.
1: And of course the usual information from from the Kinesca Agricultural Experiment Station. I mean how does one avoid you know getting bitten by mosquitoes? What's the advice that you're giving?
0: A lot of it is common sense and and simply covering up, wearing long sleeve pants and shirts will reduce the number of bites. And you want to consider applying an insect repellent, an EPA approved insect repellent to your exposed skin surfaces, and that will reduce the number of bites. Avoiding your time outdoors in wooded areas or in at dusk and dawn when mosquitoes are most active will also reduce the number of bites you receive but and so yeah some of the, those are some of the practical measures and then around the home certainly you want to reduce you see standing water that or water that's collecting in flower pots or in, a, in your bird bath or in uh, clogged uh, rain gutters you want to eliminate that water at least once a week to
1: prevent mosquitoes from completing their development on your property. The other thing I wanted to ask you as well as we're seeing a lot of clothing these days, which is like impregnated with chemicals, which is supposed to sort of like repel or in some instances, you know, kill uh, pests. Is any of that useful, you know, against mosquitoes at all that you you know of?
0: Yeah, for sure. There's a uh, product called permethrin. The chemical is derived from the chrysanthemum flower. It's a, uh, chemical, but it's originally derived from, based on a natural compound found in chrysanthemum flowers, and it repels mosquitoes. It also kills mosquitoes. So if they did land on you on that impregnated fabric, they would be killed by the product. So it has sort of a dual action. And that is one thing that people can do as well to really uh, give you extra protection.
1: A final question: Apart from uh, looking after ourselves, of course, mosquitoes go after anything. So, pets—if you've got cats and dogs that like go outside—is there anything that you can do, you know, to to safeguard your pets as well? Because I'm guessing they're targets for mosquitoes just as much as anyone else.
0: Yeah, they certainly are. Fortunately, I don't have any great advice there. It's not like, say, with the ticks, where there are like flea products or products that will kill the, the ticks that are, that are feeding on your pet. So, but the good news is, is that it seems like dogs and cats, at least, don't contract West Nile virus or triple E virus, and unlike, say, horses and humans, which are very susceptible to these viruses.
1: So if you're a a dog and a cat owner, not so much to worry about, but uh, obviously horses, which we do have plenty here in the States, uh, you just have to be a little bit more mindful if you've got horses out, obviously, at this time.
0: And for horses, there actually is a vaccine for West Nile virus in Tripoli that is effective. And so horse owners should vaccinate their horses. Unfortunately, there's no vaccine for people. So we're left to the measures I talked about, just reducing your exposure to
1: mosquitoes. Well, Philip uh, from the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you ever so much for uh, obviously monitoring these mosquitoes along with the team down there, but also for the great advice about making sure that we stay safe while we're out and about. Thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: The rivers and waterways of Connecticut are a great place to get out on, either by boat or maybe kayak or paddleboard, offering relaxation and the chance to spot some great local wildlife. But in recent years, an underwater menace has been growing, and at such a rate, it's now causing concern in the Connecticut River. It's called hydrilla, and it's just a plant. But as I found out from Emily DeLuca, a local filmmaker, it's something we can no longer afford to ignore. Emily, we are by the side of the Connecticut, beautiful Connecticut River. You've done a documentary about a little problem within the river. Tell us how you got involved in that.
2: So I first got involved in the project uh, through the nonprofit Connecticut RC&D, Connecticut Resource Conservation and Development. And I was doing some freelance projects for them. I was working on a pilot program they were doing for no-till and cover crop equipment. Um, I was working on some videos for composting. And then they brought this one to the table. And they said, you know, it's kind of another one-off project. You know, can you make a video about this hydrilla problem? And the more I learned about it, and the more people that we interviewed, the more I realized how big of a problem it is. And not only that, but how great of a story it is. Because it, it impacts so many different industries and it impacts so many different towns in the state so it just kind of snowballed into this larger project that we took on together.
1: Just talk to us a little bit about you know the challenges of doing a documentary because there's a huge amount of work involved in creating any sort of visual art and documentaries can be done in so many different styles but there's a lot of work involved isn't there?
2: Yes there's a lot of work if you can make it look easy then you've done it right. (laughs) And, you know, I was lucky enough to have Connecticut RC&D kind of be my partner in it from start to finish. So not only did they fund it, but they also connected me with all of the people that were featured in the film. So they they set up the interviews for them, and were, they asked all the questions, and we kind of worked together to get these moving parts in one piece. And then... After that, I kind of looked at everything or I would we would we would finish the interview and I'd say, oh, I would love to, you know, get some local politicians involved. I'd love to get the political side of this because we've seen the environmental, you know, we've seen the scientific, we've seen, you know, even the the real estate impact that it has from a local level. So, you know, we we collaborated a lot back and forth in terms of what kind of voices did we want to feature? What kind of story did we want to tell? And I think a story like Hydrilla really lends itself to be very holistic. So I, as a documentary filmmaker, really didn't want to just focus in on it being a scientific video because you lose user, you lose uh, audience by that doing that. You, you know, it needs to appeal to everyone because it affects everyone. So, so yeah, we, we work together in kind of finding those different voices and getting a holistic story about this problem.
1: We're just going to like, clarify, hydrilla is this invasive species, which actually looks quite beautiful when you look at it. I mean, it's this like it green does. sort of plant, but mm-hmm. it's choking, effectively choking the waterways in Connecticut. And that's the concern, isn't it, that it's become uh, such a big problem. What were some of the things that you learnt when you were doing the documentary? Because like you said, you're the documentary maker. You're not necessarily the expert on this. But what were some of the, the things that made you as a documentary maker, go, wow.
2: So it is very beautiful in the sunlight. And one of the things that I learned through it, so I remember I was kayaking in, I think it was the Salmon River with my fiance, actually, before this project even began. And I remember kayaking and seeing it kind of right next to the kayak and thinking, oh, we're going into shallow water. You know, this is like a normal aquatic vegetation. We must be getting into shallow water. Let's turn around. And then after creating this documentary and learning everything I did about it, went back to the same spot with Greg Bugby from the uh, Connecticut Ag Station. And he was explaining to me that actually, no, that goes 10 feet deep. It's just this species that is growing to the point where it's making boating and kayaking impossible for people. So that was you know something that i think a lot of people that saw the film kind of experienced was that sense of oh i see this all the time on the river what is it you know or oh yeah i see that you know next to my boat or on the dock or on the wherever and i think that that kind of awareness of recognizing what it is and then knowing what to do when you see it was kind of the point i was trying to get across to everyone that lives in this area because there's such a love of this river and the environment and fishing and boating and, and bird watching, And for people to not be aware of something like this, I thought was very tragic because it's a huge problem. And I don't think the majority of people that use the river even know what it is.
1: So what did some of the people say to you? Because, I mean, you had access to an amazing array of experts. And like you said, I believe you also spoke to some local politicians as well. Can you give us a bit of an idea of some of the comments that, you know, came out of those conversations that you had?
2: Yeah, it was anywhere from, you know, an understanding of the science behind it, how you can't necessarily pull this out to get rid of it. You know, there's uh, fragmentation involved. So when people go to pull it out, thinking they're doing something good, they actually are making the problem worse because it, you know, it spreads and it floats down the river. So you know, it was a, it, it was a better understanding of the science behind it and um, and how it spreads and also how it got here. You know, just hearing that. People that have fish tanks that have exotic plants in them, you know, when they go to dispose of them, they dump them in their backyard and and that somehow gets into the waterways and the rivers. And that's kind of, you know, one of the ways that it gets to become an invasive problem. So understanding kind of where it came from, how it spreads, and, and then ultimately what to do about it from a local perspective.
1: And then what about some challenges for you personally, actually, like filming it? Because I'm guessing you had to get out on the water and then, of course, you know you want to get some really good shots. Can you recall any particular challenges you had when you were actually doing the physical filmmaking that you thought, OK?
2: Yes, there were there were many challenges. One, I realised that I need a gimbal for my camera because uh, it's very hard to film on a boat <laughs> um, and keep it stable. But, yeah, you know, it was... Um, there were challenges. As, as any film, there's challenges. But uh, being on the water, it was it was beautiful. We had some really beautiful mornings of filming. You know, seeing the, the fog come up on the river, you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning, it's like you develop an appreciation for the river as well as you're making the story. Yeah, there was, unfortunately, even one moment when I dropped my phone in the water because I was getting too close to the hydrilla to try to film it. But, you know... It, yeah, there's always challenges involved. But for the most part, it was uh, it was pretty, you know, seamless filming.
1: So you created this documentary. I understand that also in the state, they're hoping to propose a management plan as well, because this has become such a big issue. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing maybe the documentary is part of that sort of like mechanism uh, to, you know, educate people, uh, not only just, as you say, the everyday user on the river, but I'm guessing our legislature as well.
2: Exactly. And and that was also kind of the goal of the film was not just to raise awareness on the local level, but also on a legislative level. You know, Christine Palm just passed a bill in earlier this year, I think, specifically targeting Hydrilla to try to get funding to get rid of it. And, uh, you know, I think that it's awareness across the board because I think that there's, you know, there's local voters that aren't aware of it and there's probably politicians that aren't aware of it. Or at least they've heard of it, but they haven't seen visually the impact that it's having, or they don't you know they don't hear those personal stories of people struggling to you know get out of their dock or or um, all of the wildlife that's being affected by it. and I think that that seeing those visual images can have a, a lasting impact on people in terms of a problem and a cause versus just, you know, talking about it or reading about it. I think that was the goal to kind of visually scare people into saying, okay, this is this is a real problem and you're going to lose the river that you love if you're not aware of this and you don't do something about it.
1: Yeah, because the title is actually called Invading the Connecticut River, the Spread of Hydrilla, which certainly does sort of like punch it in your face doesn't it sort of thing that it is you know it is an issue so how can people find and see this documentary because like we said it it is a very important thing and the more that people understand about it you know they'll be able to like back up hopefully their local legislators and and help
2: right and not just that but i think the ways that people can help not just by being aware but also you know the big thing that Connecticut Deep kept pushing to people was clean drain and dry your boat so if you have a boat on the river and you are coming out and you see hydrilla fragments on it you know do your part to to wash your boat and and to to clear it of those remnants before leaving um and taking it to another waterway and then just also you know staying clear of those patches knowing where they are and not making it worse and then spreading the word, obviously. But the, you know, you can see the film on my Vimeo Vimeo page, but then also on my website as well, CrossCourtMedia.com.
1: Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, it will be interesting to see not only the reaction to the documentary but also hopefully that our legislators will get behind it and, and if a management plan is created, no doubt, I'm sure another documentary in the waiting um, to see exactly how we deal with this, uh, this very sort of like unknown problem that's lurking in our waterways. Emily, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you. Since recording the interview with Emily, Connecticut U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal is calling for the state to set aside $100 million over the next four years to fund the eradication of Hydrilla that is now affecting drinking water as well as recreational boating and tourism. The Arc Eastern Connecticut invites you to participate in the 33rd Annual Gardner-Johnson Memorial Golf Tournament Friday, June 25th at the Connecticut National Golf Club in Putnam. The Arc has provided residential, day, in-home and employment and social programs for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families since 1952. Come and join us as we walk in partnership for full equality for people with IDD. Event prices and details at thearkect.org forward slash golf. Got stumps? then call Green Valley Tree LLC and let us
0: remove them for you. Our stump grinder is quick and efficient, leaving your property stump-free in no time. Our stump grinding services are available for homeowners, contractors, and municipalities alike. Call us for a quote at 860-234-4041. And find out about our other services at our
1: website, greenvalleytreeworks.com. We're family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. The Connecticut Port Authority will now have to report more regularly to the state after a new bipartisan bill was voted in calling for more oversight of the quasi-public agency. Mayor of New London Michael Passero says it's about time, as he's been fighting the CPA for the last two years over their state peer project in his city. All of these problems, I think if the city was represented, at least their voice, at those meetings there wouldn't, there wouldn't have been so much... Bad relationships over things like the fishermen, displacement of the salt, problems with the uh, longshoremen. I think having the local voice there for this board would have been beneficial for everybody. The bill will also allow for six additional new CPA board members, three of which will come from the state's deep water port cities of New London, New Haven and Bridgeport. The Connecticut chapter of the Associated Builders and Contractors Organisation is condemning state government overreach on the use of project labour agreements for private enterprise contract work in Connecticut, especially after PLAs were included in the cannabis bill before the state. That requires private companies to use them for work on their cannabis facilities with a value of $5 million or more. Chris Frixell is the president of ABC in Connecticut and says it's a case of state government putting large union organizations' interests above everyone else. The unions are large campaign donors, quite frankly. And what this is, is the
0: state is directing private construction contracts, high value contracts to these union only firms. I mean, it's just a fact of the matter that they are large
1: campaign donors uh, for the majority party. Frixel says project labour agreements are normally required where public taxpayers' money is being used on a project and this is the first case of private companies potentially being directed by the state. He says not only does it question where you draw the line but can also increase the cost of projects by as much as 20% using PLAs. The Submarine Museum in New London has officially reopened as COVID-19 restrictions continue to ease, allowing more businesses to open their doors. Lieutenant Commander Derek Sutton is the new director of the Submarine Museum and says they've added some new high-tech exhibits to the museum you can access with your cell phone.
0: As you walk around the museum, you'll see these little QR codes, and some of them is just some follow-on information, so you can dive a little bit deeper into a specific topic. Other ones... uh... You can take a selfie inside of a World War II-era Mark IV scuba helmet, those types of things.
1: The museum reopening was attended by Navy officials from the submarine base as well as Congressman Joe Courtney and was part of the recent Battle of Midway commemoration. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, as the legislative session drew to a close on the 9th of June and after a number of failing efforts in previous sessions to pass a highway toll, the Connecticut General Assembly succeeded in levying a mileage fee on tractor-trailers. Supporters of the bill say the fee will force heavy trucks to pay their fair share for the damage they cause to the state's roads. Meanwhile, opponents warn that the tax will increase the price of consumer goods and will fall unfairly on Connecticut-based trucking. It's estimated that the new fee will be paid per mile and adjusted by weight of the truck will generate around $45 million in revenue in 2023, the first year it's implemented, and $90 million each year thereafter. In the day this week, and in New London, the city has chosen a firm to remediate, demolish and clean up the site of the former Thames River apartments on Crystal Avenue. The city council authorised spending of £1.4 million for Stanford Wrecking Company to start the first phase of the $3.5 million project, which calls for the removal and disposal of hazardous waste from the buildings. The city doesn't yet have the funds to pay for the entire project. It recently accepted a $3.5 million proposal from Stanford Wrecking, which was one of 13 firms to submit proposals. Thames River Apartments was a federally subsidised apartment complex for low-income families, where residents had long complained about deteriorating conditions. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, the bonds linking father and son can be woven in many ways from weekend fishing trips or afternoon sessions of backyard catch to a simple conversation over the dinner table. For Christopher Daly and his son Christopher Daly Jr., however, those ties have been strengthened through fire. The two playing field men recently attended and graduated from a local Firefighter One course, the last such generational team-up at the Central Village Fire Company No. 1 in 25 years. Local volunteer fire departments are tight-knit, familial entities, ones where uncles, grandfathers and brothers have worked side-by-side for decades, later welcoming sons and daughters into their ranks. In the Chronicle this week, controversy over the proposed development for six agbotic greenhouses continued during a Mansfield Planning and Zoning Commission public hearing recently. The applicants, John and Donna Prete are seeking to build six greenhouses at 438 Browns Road. No vote was taken and the Commission will next meet on June 21st for a virtual meeting. A couple of residents spoke in favour of the project. The vast majority, however, were opposed, voicing concerns over traffic impacts, the danger of large trucks travelling the winding Browns Road, signage issues, the potential smell of an industrial hemp farm and concern over whether this type of industry would be economically sustainable. The property currently has a blueberry patch, logging operation, hay harvesting operation and a barn as well as Red Barn Creamery and Farm Store. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.